Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Insight into Teaching Intro Psych podcast. My name is AJ LaFerrera. I am one of the marketing managers on the McGraw-Hill psychology team. And today we are going to be tackling the topic of motivation and emotion. And we are joined by three great instructors from across the country. And I'm going to go ahead and introduce each one of them now. Greg, do you want to kick us off? Sure. My name is Greg Feist, and I'm professor of psychology at San Jose State University in the Bay Area, California. And uh, I've been teaching intro psych for 25 years or so. I'm the coordinator in our department for intro psych. Uh, I also teach uh, personality, theories of personality, and psychological tests and measures are my main three undergraduate classes. And I'm also a co-author on Psychology Perspectives and Connections, intro psych book. All right, next, uh, I'm Ed Hansen. I'm a specialized teaching faculty member at Florida State University. And I've been teaching, even though I'm only a fourth-year faculty member at FSU, I've been teaching intro psych since I was a first-year graduate student. We had a program set up where 15 TAs all taught two different sections of intro psych to keep the class size a little bit smaller. And so I've been teaching intro psych just over a decade. Other courses that I teach include industrial organizational psychology, personality, child psych, and research methods. And hi, I'm Bob Dubois. I teach Intro to Psychology and some other psychology courses full-time at Waukesha County Technical College in Waukesha, Wisconsin. I also teach part-time at Milwaukee Area Technical College. And I fondly remember teaching Intro Psych as a graduate student many decades ago at Western Kentucky University. So it's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, thank you guys for joining us. We really appreciate it. So for those of you that have joined us and listened in the past, you know that we typically like to first tackle philosophical approach to teaching the content, and then we get into some practical applications in the classroom. And we're going to go ahead and follow that today as well. So to kick us off, you know, I, I think to understand where we're coming from, we have to understand what your goals are. So when you guys get to the motivation and emotion chapter, what are your goals? What do you want students to take away after you've completed this lecture? Well, you know, this is this is actually an, an interesting chapter for me. I always enjoy it because it really gets into some very basic aspects of human behavior, what drives and, and motivates us. And so what I end up doing kind of both philosophically and then in practice is I tap into kind of the overview of what drive and motivation and needs are. But, but then I, I really get into the two main ones that I focus on in my whole lecture are sex and eating and hunger. You know, those are probably the ones that are most relevant to the students and most interesting to the students. So I kind of, and I want them to understand that motivation is all about why we do what we do. What are the drives? And, and a lot of it's not conscious. We don't know. We don't, can't say why we do what we do, but we're driven to do certain things. And, and all these physiological needs and drives in particular are, are good examples. Uh, so I just want them to come away with a, perspective that there's there's an understanding of of why and how we do some very basic things as animals and as human beings. 
I think that when I approach this chapter, I, it's a little tough because it's like two chapters in one in a lot of ways, motivation and emotion. So I want them to see the connection in how we are going to be more or less motivated to do things based on our emotional states, of course. But more directly, you know, I really like this chapter as well. I look for ways for them to connect to the material because whether they're excited to do something or not excited to do something, that's motivation both times. And so I really do focus on that. I focus on a lot of the same things that Greg does. It's interesting, talking with some of my colleagues, there was one who actually said that they don't cover sexual motivations because that's one of the few things that students might be more willing to read about on their own. But I always hit it pretty hard too. And I like to see how they can connect to the material and, and apply it to their own goals. Yeah, so when I approach teaching uh, the motivation chapter, I like to teach this chapter right up front. So typically I start the course by focusing on how to learn and how to remember, and then I go straight to motivation because we all know that sometimes we can want certain things but actually struggle to make them happen. I also love this chapter because it really helps us explain behavior using a biopsychosocial model. There are definitely biological factors, psychological factors, and social fact, uh, social cultural factors that play a role. I also like to emphasize right away that motivation is quite fickle, that much of the research has found small and fleeting effects, and I think that matches our own life experience as we try to accomplish big goals. We struggle at times to, to stay motivated. So I make it clear that as a discipline, we're still learning quite a lot, and there's still much more to learn. Great. And so, Bob, you're actually segueing right into what our next question is, which is, you know, where do you typically teach this? And it sounds like for you, this is right up front as an opportunity to kind of help students motivate themselves throughout the semester. Do you revisit it at all, or is it you hit it up front, and then that's where you cover it? I pretty much hit it up front. The very first chapter that I cover is the chapter on memory, and I place that all in the context of trying to help students develop a pretty sound academic plan for learning and being successful in the class. And then I hit uh, motivation second because we all know that we can know how to learn but struggle at, at times to actually engage in the, the very behaviors that we want to engage in. Yeah, and I, I actually don't do that. I come at it from kind of where it's placed in the book, which is two-thirds or so of the way into the end of the semester. But yeah, after I've done, you know, learn, you know, all the other chapters, but then before personality. But anyway, so I, I just cover it kind of where it stands there. Yeah, I really like to mix it up as far as how I present the chapters. I think that I always start with social psychology just because it's one of the chapters that students relate to probably the most. And with my own training being in social psychology, it's, it's a little bit more applicable to my own work as well. I tend to tuck it right in after memory because emotions are such an important part of what we remember well and what we remember not as well. So I, I use that to sort of slide right into it. And I really enjoy teaching memory first and then teaching motivation. And I have a, a major assignment that, that goes along with that where students create a success plan for the course. And it begins with the memory chapter with them focusing on how they're going to engage in appropriate learning strategies. And then it kind of wraps up with discussion of motivation. 
and everything in that chapter, and they incorporate some of the motivational strategies that are going to help them stay on task. Now, I also include some productivity, task management kinds of things within the motivation chapters. So uh, I'm blessed the book I have includes getting things done, so I tend to also focus on how they're going to incorporate productivity principles to get things done. Okay, so we're talking a little bit about how and when you approach this chapter within the course, but what about things that you end up excluding from this chapter that you wish you could include? Well, I guess the one thing that you asked about is what we don't teach, and I was looking through, and, and if I can just say, I mean, I now know so much more about all this stuff, and, and I really feel it's really frustrating to leave out so much stuff, but, like, I don't really talk about achievement, uh, the achievement part, and, and motivation and work, for instance. I just don't have the time, and I always feel bad about that, and so that's one of the things I actually don't include, but, but you know, some semesters I, I try to focus, and that's another thing. Sometimes I kind of alternate across semesters what I do, do and don't talk about. Uh, but that's, that's, that's just my own thing that, that ends up falling away, unfortunately. Well, yeah, I was thinking about what I wanted my students to take away from the chapters. If they're taking a course that's a little bit more upper level, you'll be able to hit the, the famous theoretical approaches to emotion like James Lang and Cannon Bard and Schachter Singer, and I don't really emphasize those that much. So I really try to focus on what is valuable to an intro student, recognizing that so many of them are just going to be taking only the one psych course. Yeah, and for that matter, I've for years and years, of course, always delved into Maslow's hierarchy, but in the last few years, I, I kind of for the same reason, I've kind of and I do talk about that in my personality class, which is an upper division class, of course. So, right, right kind of the same thing, that, that the more theoretical approach, students, at the, especially at the intro level, just aren't as into the theories of things, but more the, a little bit more applied. Well, and see, I've found that if you uh, test on that, it, it really causes some struggle for students. So what I tend to do is teach all of those models, but basically just remind them that Essentially, each of those theories get at an aspect of the truth, and that ultimately um, the way we think and, and our environment and some of our other characteristics of us all influence uh, what emotions we feel and when we feel those. So I think they all get at aspects of the truth. Great. So it sounds like we're actually already getting into some of the practical applications in the classroom. Why don't we jump right over to that? So. When you guys start the lecture on motivation and emotion, how do you how do you start that first lecture? Well, you know, I here's where I I kind of try to hit them with one of the most gripping and and exciting and interesting uh, examples that I think I have all semester, which is this study on on casual sex and gender differences in casual sex, and it's this it's a study where this attractive male or female, they were part of the study, they were Confederates, and they go around randomly asking a student on campus either A, would you go out with me, B, would you come back to my apartment with me, and C, would you uh, go to bed with me. But what I do is I have each one on a slide, and I don't give the answers, but I just ask the students. Okay, so how many people would, would say yes to let's say, an attractive member of the opposite sex coming up and asking you just kind of off the cuff, would you, would you go out with me? 
And then men and women, you know, they start laughing and they get a big kick out of it. And they'll say, oh, it's roughly, you know, maybe 70, 30 or something. Um, men would say 70, 70% men. And, but then as it gets more and more toward sex, of course, obviously the numbers are going to go down. But then some people are always saying, oh, now at that point, you know, if an attractive woman comes up to a guy and says, you know, would you go to bed with me? You know, 100% of the guys are going to say yes. And of course, we, you know, that's a, kind of a joke. But but they get into it and it kind of grabs their attention. And then I show them what the actual study says each time. And they're always kind of amused and, and interested in that. So that just kind of grabs their attention right off the bat. And then I use that as a springboard for, okay, well, this is motive. This is, I mean, there's a lot going on here. It's gender, it's sex, but ultimately it's, it's drive and motivation, a very fundamental drive and motivation. And, and how do we explain that? Uh, why does that happen? So I kind of, that's how I start off the lecture. Yeah, I use that example too. It's not the one that I start with. It's kind of an interesting coincidence that study was done at Florida State University. So I, I have them picture themselves walking around campus and being approached as if they were the participants in that classic study. I also have them guess the, the rates, and, and that's pretty classic. But my way of introducing the topic is a lot more personal. When I was an undergrad, I took a class called Theories of Motivation. And it was taught by a professor who had later in life picked up distance running, and he and his wife would run together. And he was seeing all these applications of motivational theories in what makes him go out, go for a run, and these kinds of processes and decisions. So in his course, when I signed up for it, I was pretty intimidated. I didn't want to really do it because I knew that the lab component of this course was that there was a half marathon that the class would organize and run. And you wouldn't have to run the half marathon, but the lab portion was to pick a motivational goal that would last all semester long. So some people picked academic goals, some people picked physical goals, and I ended up running a marathon at the end of that semester. And it was just such a really big turning point in my own academic career, seeing the applications of theoretical work that maybe wouldn't have seemed as interesting, but seeing how it applies to real life success and real life goal setting and outcomes, it was a big impact on me. And so I start with that story, then I go into some of the more basic drives and, and get to the example Greg just uh, used, but I, I use my own story of how I got interested in motivation in the first place as a way to introduce the chapter. Now, I, I like to start the motivation class, and I usually divide the motivation and emotion uh, chapter into two different class sessions. But I start the motivation class session by uh, asking students ahead of class to complete a, a number of self-assessments that get at many of the motivational concepts that are going to be part of the day. So they, inc they include some assessments of a grit, a growth mindset, self-control, self-determination, meaning and purpose, and learning orientation. And in addition to completing those self-assessments, they also watch TED Talks that correspond to each of those topics. And then they come to class prepared to teach one of those six motivational strategies. And so I do what's called a jigsaw classroom in class for the first half of the class. And then after that, I walk through some of those concepts myself. And then after class, they do a reflection and a mastery exam over that content. 
Wow, that's that's very interesting. Unfortunately, I teach a class of 250 or so, so I wouldn't be able to quite do yeah, that. Yeah, up. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm pretty lucky that all my classes are typically about 30 students. Ah. So, Bob, do you do that in just the motivation part of the lecture, or do you do that in motivation and emotion, or separately? Well, I do about five jigsaws every semester, and the first one is on the learning strategies, and I happen to use the learning strategies that are shared by the Learning Scientist website. Uh, there are six of those. And then I do the second one on motivation, and there are about three or four more throughout the semester. For emotion, I typically start also with a self-assessment. So they typically take the positive and negative affect scale and also an emotional intelligence assessment. And then when we come into class, basically, I do a, a lecture on the topic. Yeah, you know, I haven't said anything about emotion yet. You know, and I, I have it all in one lecture slide set, but I, of course, end up, yeah, kind of dividing motivation into one day and, and then emotion in, in the other. And for emotion, I always start off with just some slides of human faces making different facial expressions of emotion. And I just ask them, you know, okay, what, what emotion is being expressed here? And, you know, sometimes they're subtle, sometimes they're obvious, and sometimes they tend to get them pretty, pretty accurately and, and sometimes not quite as much. And then I, I kind of immediately move into other aspects of the facial element of emotion because that's always fun. Uh, and in fact, I, I then do something that's even a little bit out of sequence with my, my home book, which is I kind of go from there into culture and, and well, which is in the book, but culture and, and facial recognition. But what's not in the book in this chapter, it's in social, is deception. Because to me, that actually makes a lot of sense to then just bring in deception research and, and how lying is uh, and detecting lying is not nearly as easy as people think it is. So, so I end up bringing that aspect into the emotion chapter because I think, to me, those, that's really connected also to the, the facial aspect of, of emotion and how people conceal emotions, for instance, or try to anyway when they're lying. Yeah, that's reaffirming to hear because I also introduced the lie detection literature between the real-life work of uh, Paul Ekman and then how it was turned into that television show, Lie to Me, which of course is not on the air anymore, but still serves as a pretty interesting example. And we talk about how some individuals are really good at picking up emotions and, and lie detection, and some a lot less so, but also how some people are a lot more expressive in their emotions. We talk about micro-expressions and how some of us maybe shouldn't play poker because our micro-expressions are more macro expression. So we, we talk about all of the different things that emotion can relate to, especially when people do or don't want other people to know how they feel. Yeah, and of course, I, I do the same thing. In fact, I'm not sure you know, but my co-author, Erica Rosenberg, was Paul Ekman's student, and she worked also on, she and Paul both worked on the TV series Lie to Me. Yeah, and in, in a couple of years ago, I used to always bring that up, but now that that's off the air, I don't really quite yeah. talk about that as much. But it is interesting how students still have these 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 false notions of, of deception, like if you're looking up into one side, you know, or if you're nervous. And, and then I even give some film footage of uh, actually from Paul's, uh, Paul Ekman's uh, research lab of two people, well, one person lying and one person telling the truth. And it's about a two-minute or one-minute video clip. 
and I have them tell me, okay, which one of these people is lying and which one I'm telling the truth? And no more than, you know, there's a 50-50 chance, and that's about what I get. I can only get about 50% of the class getting, finding, and detecting the person lying, and that's kind of always interesting. And then I also get into the uh, kind of the adaptive nature of emotions. Why do we have emotions? What do they tell us? They're not, they're, yeah, they can be irrational, but without emotion, you know, we wouldn't survive. You know, without being afraid, we would not know what's about to kill us. So I also get into that angle as well, which is, I don't think they kind of think of it that way, so. Yes, and I like to also cover those topics, and probably one of the things that I, I like to bring up is getting students to reflect on the nature of their uh, emotional experience from day to day. When they basically get familiar with some of the positive and negative emotions that they might experience, I like to introduce the work of Dr. John Gottman in his love lab and get students thinking about the ratio of positive to negative emotions in their own life as well as in their relationships. And um, many times they can really relate to the damage that can be done in relationships when you have far more negative um, emotions throughout the day than, than positive and also what one negative experience can do to uh, really outdo many positive experiences. And so they, they really like to relate to that research. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about the Gottman approach. That, that's a clever idea. Yeah. Yeah, and I also like to discuss some of the provocative research by Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett on the role of culture on expressed emotion and even some of the um, challenges that she has introduced to even some of the work of Paul Ekman. So I, I find it interesting to get students to think about the social cultural uh, influences that shape how we choose to express emotion. Yeah, well, debates are always, I think, important to teach. Yeah, and there's some, there's some excellent TED Talk that she has, and there's also a really good episode of Invisibilia, which uh, walks through that. Okay, so, you know, we've kind of, I think that was a really great progression from motivation into emotion. We talked about how you guys start those lectures. What about when you're inside of the lectures? We started to cover that a little bit in what you guys were just sharing. But are there other examples that you guys are using to help make the content more relatable for students? Well, when I get into eating, I, I always set up that eating behavior with the whole idea of spaces first, more generally. You know, how we have these set points that our bodies have for certain places where we're essentially most comfortable, whether it's hunger or, or body temperature or thirst or whatever, <laughs> kind of like the old thermostat metaphor. But then I get into uh, and why that makes weight loss so difficult. And in fact, actually, there's some really interesting, fairly new research that dieting is ultimately worse because it changes your set point each time. It actually raises your set point for your, your weight. And so every time you diet and lose weight, but then you start gaining weight, which is unfortunately what happens in almost all, in most cases, you're bringing your set point back up. And so it's actually in the long run, it's kind of harder to lose weight, ironically, if you keep dieting, especially, but if, especially if you do this, this yo-yo dieting stuff and keep losing and gaining. Uh, and then the whole idea, of, especially of, of body image, and this is where, you know, such a huge thing for people, especially, unfortunately, women and, and the 
uh, and how they have distorted body images, and then I kind of get into eating disorders from there, of course. Well, I also like to address uh, issues related to hunger and, and weight. Partly, I'm open with my students. When I was their age, or the age of many of my students, I was a thin young man. And uh, like many other folks, uh, as I approached middle age, I got the middle age bulge and basically gained some weight. And so I like to remind students that we change across the lifespan. And I came across a really excellent book in the last year called The Hungry Brain. And that book really does an excellent job of synthesizing a lot of the biopsychosocial science on hunger and weight and obesity. And so I've managed to make some really nice uh, slides from that book to kind of illustrate just how complex it is. And I think a lot of students appreciate the opportunity to see just how challenging it can be to understand something as simple as how much we weigh and right. why we eat. Yeah, I think that um, sharing personal examples like that, you know, it, it always helps. You want to make sure that you're not oversharing, of course. But this is one of the examples that I really think brings motivation and emotion together very, very well because, you know, we also can compare the set point for our weight and how a person might struggle to keep their weight down with the set point of emotions and the hedonic treadmill and how we have this inability to accurately affective our affective forecasting is not very accurate and we have these expectations for example of say my students really want FSU to beat UF in the big football game that they think it's going to make them really happy and make them happy for a long time when of course the literature shows that after a short amount of time is going to pass that they're going to go back to their typical happiness level so I like to show the comparisons and set point in managing your weight and set points in managing your mood and as a way to introduce positive psychology. Huh. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that exactly, but as a personality psychologist, that just rings a bell for me. Is Oh, that's personality. You're going back to your trait level, affective, uh, affective levels, actually. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. I love to introduce media, current media, and kind of relate it to the topic, too. And so um, I have found ways to discuss shows as diverse as Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead, Star Wars, to try to illustrate some of the concepts. So, for example, using Star Wars, I sometimes refer to the competing limbic system and prefrontal cortex systems and how we have these hot kind of, I, I want it now, drives that I basically remind them of Jabba the Hutt, and then we also have this need for wise and um, focused and thoughtful action, and I remind them of the uh, wise advice I've given uh, in Star Wars, too. So, so speaking to that, I, I guess it reminds me of some of the things that I challenge with. So when talking about things like eating disorders, a student might bring up that they watched a new Netflix documentary. Like there was one called To the Bone that was about this person who has anorexia and it's portrayed by an actress who actually suffered from the eating disorder. And, you know, it makes some students uncomfortable because is it glorifying the eating disorder or is it representing it accurately? So I definitely try and include those cult pop cultural references, but a lot of the time it's 
tough to strike the balance of what do we want them to take away from it and what is going too far. Well, and the, this model that I use, and then Amy Winehouse, you know, although Amy Winehouse didn't die from that, but this model that I use, I show a picture of her before and after her eating disorder, and she ended up dying. So one of the points I try to make is that this is more than just the disorder. I mean, it can be deadly. I mean, it, so it's not to be underplayed. And obviously, you know, there's, there's yeah, there's going to be a sizable number of people who, who suffer from in the class, and you, you definitely need to be sensitive, but you also want to be informative and what the research shows and, and what it actually is. Well, I think the eating disorders really help illustrate also that there's uh, biopsychosocial influences uh, relevant to both the cause and the treatment. And right. So I think that runs through almost everything in motivation and emotion, is that you really get to see um, how these um, multiple forces interact. And, and when you really try to understand why we do the things we do, it's basically a complicated uh, story. Yeah, and along those lines, I think also not only that we eat and how much we eat, you know, one thing I get into is how in the U.S. we do have one of the higher rates of being overweight and, and obesity in the world, but also in the terms of content of what we eat, and that's a great example of culture, of cuisines, you know, how things in different cultures are delicacies and amazingly delicious and, you know, and loved, and in other cultures they're detested and disgusting, you know, and that's always kind of fun, too, to bring in the, how cuisine and culture interact. Obviously, we all need to eat. That's a biological given, but then how we eat and what we eat is a social-cultural phenomenon. Absolutely, and, and there have been some really interesting uh, media pieces that share some of those differences in culture, like what's in a person's kitchen, depending on where you live. Uh, I also like to discuss some of the work of James Gross um, in terms of emotion management and behavior management, kind of self-regulated behavior. And so I, I use certainly um, how to stay focused on study as one of the um, platforms for considering his model, but I also like to focus on hunger. So we discuss some of the situational strategies that students can use so that they can try to influence and, and their behavior day-to-day -day and stay on track to achieve their goals. And then we also talk about some of the cognitive strategies that they can use. So we try to get them thinking not just about the nature of the problem, but the nature of the interventions that they could make to basically help them resolve the, the problems they might have with motivation. All right, well, this has been a very quick 30 minutes. Now, thank you guys. I think you guys have, have covered a lot of ground here. And as we always do, I want to make sure I give each of you an opportunity for some parting thoughts. So, Bob, do you want to kick us off with some parting thoughts? Sure. I, I think one of the things that I would challenge everyone who teaches intro psych and the motivation chapter to consider is how they actually make some of this material come alive for their students. And one of the examples I, I really think we ought to all consider is how do we give students opportunities to engage in self-motivated learning activities as part of our classes. And so uh, one of the things I like to do is share some of the current media and research on topics like motivation and give students an opportunity to select from kind of a menu of possible options, things that they uh, are motivated to best do to demonstrate learning. So I think that's something to consider is how do we make motivation a part of our teaching strategy. 
Yeah, I think that similarly, I try and find ways for them to really use this information and be successful. So a lot of students are motivated to do well, and they don't know what steps to take to do well. So I think identifying you know, how motivations aren't always going to work in our best interest. We have competing motivations and emotions a lot of the time. And being aware of that is really helpful. But I also try and end on a positive note with some allusions to positive psychology and how it's opened up this brand new area of research that a lot of my students are really interested in. So we do focus a little bit more on positive psych to end the unit on a positive note. I personally really like this chapter because it deals with some just very basic human functioning and more than just, you know, sex and eating. You know, so I, I think it's inherently interesting and I just try to kind of let the, the topic speak for itself in many ways. And, and the students do get grabbed by it typically. You know, and as I, I was thinking though, and I always feel bad that I can't cover things that are that are really important too in motivation, like you know, like the more the, the learning perspective or the achievement and drive, uh, what drives careers and work motivation, even why did they show up to class? I mean, wh why do some students show up to class and others not? I mean, what very basic motivational things that, that they don't even realize are, are actually, you know, why they're interested in anything uh, and why do they want to do anything. So I try to always bring in that perspective in this chapter. And that's the motivation side. And, and, uh, and then the emotion is, yeah, how it, how it, actually how emotions and motivations are tied. You know, what, what feels good uh, emotionally is, is motivational. Uh, we, want, we want to keep doing that. So, so yeah, that's kind of my, my big picture perspective that I always try to impart in this chapter. Great. Well, Bob, Ed, Greg, uh, I want to thank the three of you for joining us today on this episode of the podcast on motivation and emotion. And for everybody that's listening, thank you for joining us, and hopefully we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Take care. All right. Thank you. Yep. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you for listening.